0: Achtung. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making Your Talk with me, Al Murray and James Holland. James, what are we at today? What are we doing?
1: Well, you, you will know um, that, that I have said many, many, many times that we underestimate the Canadians and they don't get the credit they deserve for their part in the Second World War, punching massively above their weight, whether it be in the Air Forces, whether it be in the Battle of the Atlantic um whether it be on land and one of the great chroniclers of the Canadian army in the Second World War is Mark Zucker, who's just absolute forensic detail um, of the human experience and also providing a huge amount of analysis as well. It has to be said on what they've done, what they achieve, whether it be in Sicily, whether it be southern Italy, uh, whether it be in the other parts of Italy, whether it be Juno Beach the breakout. Uh, or whether it be the terrible victory, um, the Battle of the Shelt. Um, and uh, I'm very keen, Mark, for you to come on number of, a number of times onto this podcast. But in this particular instance, we get so many questions about the Shelt campaign. Uh, and it is that kind of, it is the forgotten battle, uh, to, to to use the name of the film that's just come out. But, but it is a way, you know, people sort of don't know much about it. So we thought it'd be a really good idea to get an expert on who can tell us about the Shelt campaign, and I thought of no other person other than you, Mark. Oh,
2: well, nice to be here. Thanks for having <laughs> me in.
1: It's a,
0: a pleasure, Mark. Um, to to the to those that don't, that don't know that the, the the reasons for the shelter. I mean, we talk about on this podcast. We talk about Operation Market Garden an awful lot. <laughs> I can um, imagine. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, and and because uh, I was raised on tales of it as a as, as a boy, and and the motion picture was a big thing on on our televisions on. On public holidays, basically, but <clears throat> the, the, this is a very much a campaign that 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 is a it happens uh, as a consequence of in the shadow of uh, uh, Market Garden. But I think an incredibly important piece of the jigsaw, isn't it, to bring victory in Europe? Yeah, you know,
2: it really is, uh, because it, it all comes down to Antwerp in the end. the uh, The big Bel this is Belgium's largest port. In nineteen forties, it was also a little. The largest port really in in Europe and opening up that port becomes a critical is critical to being able to bring in supplies and and to keep the Allied army moving. you have to remember everything was coming across the beaches in Normandy still and then being trucked all the way up to where the Allies were and of course the Allies are advancing further and further away from Normandy so your trucks have to go further and further every time just to get the gas there um the, uh, the, it was a three to one ratio you you burned three gallons of gas to get one gallon to the troops at the front which is just
1: absurd isn't it I mean, totally
2: pretty- <laughs> <laughs> yeah no it was a totally ridiculous scenario uh, but that was what the allies were caught in and so their move guns think it was September 9th, um, the British uh, liberate Antwerp, but they don't, there's the 75 kilometers of the Scheldt estuary running all the way to the Atlantic is still in German hands. And Montgomery, of course, is shifting all of his attention over to Operation Market Garden. And so he takes the 30th Corps, who are the ones who have arrived in Antwerp, and moves them. Uh, to be part of, of Operation Market Garden, the essential part of, of Market Garden, really, because they've got to go up and uh, relieve each of those airborne divisions. Um, and Montgomery was making a calculated decision in this. It was a calculated gamble, if you will. Um, He wanted to get to Arnhem. He thought then he could break into Germany and the war would be over by Christmas. You know, that's what we always want to do, is get a war over by Christmas. Um, (laughs) You know, of course, we know it didn't work out that way. Um, But what he thought is that First Canadian Army could open up Antwerp, take the Scheldt Estuary, and get those ships coming in. What he didn't look at was how overextended First Canadian Army already was at this point. We've got a third division down on the coast still trying to open up the uh, channel ports. uh, Because
1: because I, I think what a lot of people sort of forget is that when you're doing this big sweep at the end of the Normandy campaign, you know, Normandy's all over and everyone's sort of charging health eleven mm, yeah. in the next sort of ten days and getting as far as Brussels and all the rest of it. it, it it's it's an arrowhead. It's 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 a it's a long finger. It's not it's not like a big consistent wave going northwards or north, northeastwards. north There's large swathes of of northern France and Belgian the Belgian coast and everything, which are still in German hands.
2: Uh, That's right. Uh, the
1: Canadians are kind of on the coastal. They're on the on the left flank of the Allied advance. Yes. The British Second Army on on their right, mm-hmm. and then U.S. First Army on their right. So it's, it's it's one, two, three, and then Third Army beyond that. U.S. with Patton and, co- and and so on. But but the Canadians are going up that coast, and and the whole point about these these ports is that they're all festungs you know they're fortresses and' they're, they're, they've been told to behold those so, so the, the, the mass retreat the collapse of the German armies in in, Norm, in in Normandy doesn't necessarily affect those those fortress those coastal fortress places which all have to be prized out of German hands and that's not an easy task and it's not it's not a kind of sort of you know a, a quick wham bam kind of 10day that's... thing.
2: No, no, they were they were all hard fights, um, and we wouldn't have even probably won those as quickly as we did if it hadn't been for the um, um, the funnies the um, flails, the wasps, uh, the petards, all of those that, and there were just enough of those to do each city at a time. So you had to you had to take Le Havre, then you you back up, have a little rest, and then you take Boulogne, and then you do the same at Calais. So this is a slow, painful, um, in times so, of, you know, Dunkirk, we never, we weren't ever able to even take Dunkirk. We finally just roped it off and gave up on it. And, yep. uh, you know.
1: Oh, yeah, because Dunkirk, Dunkirk's not liberated till 7th of May, is it? Yeah, that's right.
2: The, the, basically, the Germans surrender when everybody else surrenders. Um, they were all a bit hungry, but they were still there, you know.
1: Yeah. So, amazing.
2: yeah, so it was really tough. So then the Canadians, we start coming in to do the Sheld estuary. <laughs> it's a very piecemeal uh, activity. The 1st Polish Armored Division uh, shows up at, and uh, fights its way up into Ternusen. Um 2nd Canadian Division comes in and takes over Antwerp and engages in what we call the streetcar war because every morning they'd all jump into the streetcars and go to the front lines, <laughs> uh, which is a pretty bizarre way of doing of doing war. Um, but they they weren't actually doing offensive at that point. They were just trying to get reorganized and, um, and then launch the offensive to try and open up the shelf. And then 4th Armored Division comes up on the right-hand side of 2nd Division. And that's when, you know, when the British liberated Antwerp, they, were, um, they thought that that was the major port, but of course, the real port of, of, of Antwerp is to the right in the east, northeast, around a town called Merksum, and those port facilities were still in German hands. And the Belgian resistance never forgave the British for not uh, immediately just carrying on, and they could have had the whole port in their hands by probably the end of a couple of days. But they were
0: but the, the, the the story is they arrive and they've only got road maps and they don't know what's what, and they've it's all happened so quickly. After because the, the 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 Great Swan from the breakout has caught has caught everybody out in terms of maps and recce and. Knowing yeah. what's in front of them, and knowing what the enemy's dispositions are, knowing that Merksham is the port, knowing, you know that 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 because it's all happened at such a torrent. Yes, you know, these and, are the sort of mistakes you can understand within the within the tumble of events. Yeah,
2: and that's right, and and we see this all the time. Well, the Canadians as well. Um, they have not you know when we get up to the Leopold Canal uh, and launch our first attack uh, with the Algonquin Regiment, yeah. two canals paralleling each other with a dike in between um we sort of realize that almost as the attack is being launched is whoops we're not crossing one canal we gotta cross two canals um yep. and that attack is completely you know the algonquins are just butchered trying to get across there
1: yeah and actually i've i've, I've been there mark and i remember seeing standing on the new road bridge and looking down one part of the canal, and there's a massive, great German bunker on yes. the side of the canal. And this is where the um, I, I'm pretty sure this is where the Algonquins get 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 slaughtered. I mean, the, the casualty rate in that attacking in attacking company is something like seventy percent or something. Yes, dead. I mean, I, mean yeah. I may have got that wrong, but it, no, it's it's pretty close.
2: It, it is pretty much that. Um, yeah, the Algonquins just got got butchered, um, and. Then everyone sits back and says, oh, we better re- reorganize here. Uh, and they do, and they realize, okay, well, now the next time we go across the Leopold Canal, we'll go across just one, the Leopold, and we'll leave the, the, the second one out of the picture. Um, and that attack goes extremely badly as well, because uh, the Germans, you know, the Germans are just able to turn a fort, the the other side of the bank, into a fort. Well,
1: ju- well, ju- ju- just go back to nineteen forty and mm-hmm. then think about the the very very patchy defense of the Bugu Canal um, outside Dunkirk against the Germans. The Germans can't get across, and it's a, it's actually a very similar kind of site. Well. The one at the Burgu canal is slightly smaller than the one on the, on the uh, Leopold canal, but crossing a major river feature like that is not easy when it's well defended and when right. it's got these quite steep sides. They've got very steep sides, so you can't just mm-hmm. sort of—it's not that easy to just—you've got to get down and then you've got to sort of boat across and then you've got to get up the other side. And you know, it's a, its a—it's very easy to defend, very easy, very very difficult to attack, isn't it? That's right. And all around is flat. Yeah. So everyone can see you coming. <laughs> you've got no cover in your advance. No,
2: that's right. When the, trees. when the when the um, the Winnipeg Rifles and the Canadian Scottish launch that um, attack, you know they also have to carry their assault craft across these large marshes, marshy fields, with the Germans watching them coming. Because, you know, as like you say, there's no cover, um, yep. and th- so there's no surprise. You, you know, everyone knows what's going to happen next, and and so. And
1: the bottom line is, is that the German forces—they might be depleted, they might be underarmed—but you only need a handful of machine guns and mortars, and yeah. it's got a job done.
2: And that's it. And the, you see constantly, and uh, from all levels coming down from Shafe through through the, through the twenty through the British Army through the first canadian army we see a constant underestimating of the germans in this one uh because they're they're we sort of view them as garrison troops they're not the they're not the good but like james says you don't actually have to be very bloody good to sit behind an mg 42 machine gun and fire up you know just fire on a fixed line so it doesn't take crack troops to to make a mess of things on the right hand side by antwerp of course they're also trying to fight outward and get into the Beveland, um, South Beveland, and that, and loop around to the north and close out the Scheldt estuary there, and that's where this battle gets really weird um, and is unique in that all of First Canadian Army is pretty quickly engaged in trying to do this. So you have no reserves because you've thrown, you've got everyone thrown into the pot trying to make some advances against a really large front. And so it becomes a very complicated, very costly battle and it happens really quickly. Um, and on that right hand side, you have crack troops suddenly thrown into the uh, German mix when uh, Camp group Chill shows up under under the general Kurt Chill. Uh, these are a lot of mostly paratroopers, heavily heavily armed. And extremely good soldiers, so it's, the battle gets really complicated. It,
0: it, and they'd cause problems on the Albert Canal, hadn't they? For um, yeah, yeah. that's where they show up. That's where they that, show. up. They're, they're
1: so, the guys from the Gill, the the battle yeah. for Gill, which the Sherwood yeah. Rangers get caught so, up in. So, so um, uh, uh,
0: before before we get into the uh, into the uh, the actual battle, where do the Canadians sit in uh, in things? Are they are they regarded by the Britishers? Because obviously you know that being being uh dominion's soldiers are they are they equal partners are they d- junior partners What's at where do they actually sit in things in terms of uh how decisions get made whether they how much uh, la- uh, latitude for their own planning and decision making they've got because 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 in normandy famously there's tactical innovation coming from the canadians mm-hmm. that, that you know that, that that sort of feeds into the story of how the allies um crack how to win in uh, to win in normandy but, but where do they sit what's their you know they because well, uh, i'm loath to even say junior <laughs> partner given given what i know of the sacrifice and the effort and the punching above the weight as jim says well
2: i think they're always they're always viewed as a junior partner um mainly because of montgomery uh yeah. you know so montgomery's controlling the second british army he's controlling first canadian army And then you get into a personality thing. Uh, He despises Lieutenant General Harry Kruerar, who commands 1st Canadian Army. And it's a feeling, it's a mutual feeling. They both despise each other. Um, (laughs) And so because Montgomery doesn't like Crerar, because he doesn't trust Kruerar, he doesn't have any admiration for Crerar's leadership, um, he's always kind of butting in there and telling the First Canadian Army people what to do. Um, this changes the, actually at the Shelf Estuary because Crerar gets sick and is evacuated to England, and Lieutenant General Guy Simmons takes over yeah. uh, the command. Now, Yeah, that, he's,
1: a, he's a very interesting guy because he, he's, what, 43, Yeah, Yeah, he's, he's very he's young
2: in, in relationship to this. And also, he's um, he's a protege of Montgomery's and, yeah. and he feels himself to have been mentored by Montgomery. He even takes to wearing the black beret, you know, and, and, and he's not even a tanker. He was never in a tank, but he's got the right. tanker's beret. Um, and so because Kriar is now out of the picture, he commands the Shelf Estuary battle. And this is actually probably Simmons's, you know, most his biggest moment of glory, if you will have it, because. Um, He carries them through that battle. Of course, Montgomery and Simmons both think that they're done with Crerar, and he won't, but Crerar comes back at the end of the battle. (laughs) And and Simmons is now, you know, shuffled back into the role of being second Canadian Corps commander. Montgomery is having to deal with Crerar yet again, and the relationship continues to be just as frosty as ever right through to the end of the war. But um,
1: but but where do you sit on Simmons? I mean, do do you think he's? Are you a, are you a fan? Do you, do you admire what he did? Uh, I mean, he he's got a reputation for being ruthlessly ambitious, kind of you know shafting other people a bit, hasn't he? And kind of yes. you know, not much. Of a sense uh, but of uh,
0: and for, and for innovation though as well. So uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's it's
2: it's the interesting thing about Simmons is we all are, because he's a very complex individual. Um, one is always left unsure of what to think about him. Uh, he's a he's pretty competent general. Uh, he does pretty good work, very good work, actually, in the Shelt Estuary. But he is a person who, if he fails, he always has a scapegoat. Um, in operations, Operation Spring with Verrier Ridge, for example, in Normandy, that is a total mess of an offensive. Um, and it's it's Simmons's offensive. He's the one who planned it, but when it goes south on him, he blames his brigade his brigade commanders, and the, specifically the battalion commanders. He lays all of the, the, their hesitancies, their incompetencies that result in the failure of this. He wrote a scathing report um, of that just completely slags all these people underneath him. Um, at the end of the Shell Estuary Battle, Third Division is commanded by uh St. Dan Spry, um, yep. who's a very good general. Uh, he sacks Spry um, because he feels the Third Division should have opened up the Breckin's pocket more quickly. It didn't. It's got to be Spry's fault, not the not the factor that well, they were given a ridiculously difficult job to do.
0: So he's very much a Monty man, then, in in, in that respect. <laughs> yeah, I know, you know, he's Monty's
2: protégé. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, very, that's
1: very true. But, it, but you know, the, sh- the shell operation becomes a massive operation, doesn't it? You know, with, with multiple divisions, with mm-hmm. commandos, with all sorts going on, with all these, you know, these avaries and amphibious craft and ducks and... Buffaloes and what have you. And all played out in in the most brutal of conditions. I mean yeah. let's not beat about the bush here. This is this is largely flooded turf. It's there's water everywhere, it's muddy, it's soggy, it's filthy. It's 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 just an absolute beast of a battle, isn't it? Which everywhere yes. you look at
2: it. Yeah, and you know, when uh I was recently asked, um, well, where was the air force? And well, The truth was, there's hardly a flyable day during the whole operation. Yes, that's that's the problem. That is the problem. You can't bring in the tactical airplanes that we had in World War II, can't fly in the middle of a rainstorm, and it rained almost every day of that that battle. Um, You see photos of it, it's just, you know, the guys are soaking wet. There's mud everywhere, as you say. Uh, the polders were all flooded. The Germans had blown most of the dikes and let water into the polders, so you can't you can't cross the polders. You have to move on the dikes, and that means that the tanks we never have any decent armored operation uh, in our support in that as well. Um, and that
1: also means you're silhouetted, Band of Brothers style, aren't you, on the yeah, top of the polder, yeah. for everyone to see. As the sun sets behind you, the non existent sun. But I mean, I mean, so just, 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 if you could in, in sort of a minute or two can you just sort of tell us the bare bones the dates of when things happened what's going on who's involved yeah. and, and how it all plays out
2: so it starts really in September early September 1944 and this battle will go right on to November 1st 1944 when when Valdrin Island finally falls which is the subject matter of the Dutch film that's just come out yes um, you know the rest and long before you get to Volkeren Island. You know, is the slogging up from the Albert Canal of, by Antwerp get up to so there? This is closing
1: up to the southern the southern side of the Scheldt Estuary.
2: That's right, and then the so the southern part of the Scheldt Estuary is what's called the Breskins Pocket, and that is from Ternhuisen, uh which is a little to the west of uh, Antwerp, uh, over to the coast. Um, that's one battle. And then we have the second battle with being second division and fourth division fighting their way north from Antwerp to get into the South Beveland Peninsula and fight their way uh, westward into Falkland Island. So two different and, battles. And, and, south,
1: and south, yeah. And South Beveland is is you've got this narrow kind of isthmus, haven't you? This narrow mm-hmm. corridor which links South Beverland, which is, to all intents and purposes, an island bar, bar this little kind of narrow isthmus. Yeah. And then next to that, then there's North Beverland, which is smaller island on top of South Beverland. Yeah. South Beverland is a, is, is a sort of like a figure, a sort of looks like a sort of, like an, an ancient horn, doesn't it? Or something. Yeah. Uh, and then, then you've got the kind of sort of roughly rectangular North Beverland. And then you've got the sort of more sort of diamond-shaped Valkyran, which is right... Is on the is on the kind of west of that the yeah on the kind of left hand side of it north of the shelter tree looks like a plump lizard you
0: have to go up the tail into the head which is what... yes that's exactly that's what it's very
1: is nice right. image yes I
2: like that yeah and it does it does and to get into the head you've got this very little narrow neck called the causeway yes. the Vulcan causeway um, yes. which today is quite wide when you drive across it you can't picture what it was in 1944 it was uh, really only about 40 feet wide at that point Um, so and it's long and again the Germans had 88 guns um, and tons and tons of machine guns all facing that Uh, and so that's the part in the, the Dutch film that the attack goes in And the Canadians are shot to pieces, uh, which they were. The Calgary Highlanders and the Black Watch uh, and the uh, Regiment de Mazinouf, the French-Canadian Battalion. Mm. um, Each in turn try and get get in there. And each in turn are stopped and suffer really heavy casualties there.
0: We need to take a quick break right now. We'll see you in a moment. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. How how do they keep going into these in these circumstances? Because this is, after all, I mean, what's interesting about this battle is this is Germans holding out, and there's actually a strategic purpose to this. uh, For for once, you know, what you can't do is it's not like Dunkirk where you can seal it off and leave it. All right, we'll leave it. You've absolutely got to do this. You've absolutely got to win this battle. I mean, you know, it's not it's not hyperbole to say failure is not an option in 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 this instance. So how do the Canadians keep themselves going in the face of this, you know, very high casualty rate? Because it's the kind of thing that could break the morale of a, of of an army. Mm-hmm. Uh, this sort of encounter in these kind of conditions. What we see,
2: and I, I've written about this quite a bit, um, with the Canadians, uh, there's a number of factors here. A First Canadian Army, all the Canadian troops there, are all volunteers. Um, there, there were no uh, conscripted soldiers until just at the very end of the war, uh, yeah. some conscripted soldiers started to show up. So that's one thing, they're volunteers. Um, again, and again, you look at it. Uh, I think it was, Canada at that time was largely a rural nation. And these, so most of these kids grew up in the country. They grew up hunting and fishing, and going out with their dads, and often going out by themselves to.
1: I've got to say, hunt. almost every single Canadian veteran that I've ever interviewed has always had that background. Yeah, and i mean, that's not to say they all did, but they nearly you know no, just the it, ones I've met. It's
2: it's it's almost the stereotype of the Canadian right. soldier of World War II. You know, uh, that's that's you know, some of them came from cities, but not a heck of a lot of them and so they were resourceful and so what we see is if your company commander gets killed or wounded the lieutenants take over if the lieutenants get killed or wounded the sergeants take over take them out of the picture pretty soon you've got down you might have a platoon being commanded by a private um, this happens over and over and over again they they're resourceful enough that they just keep going um or maybe they're stupid enough that they just keep going <laughs> <I get it. laughs> in, in this situation where, where where as you say but you know failure is not an option it is very true and they were aware of that uh One thing first Canadian Army's commanders did do that was good uh, and I think different uh than maybe the American British armies they tended to explain to the troops what was going on and what they were about um, and that information yeah it moved down the command chain so sergeant so-and-so who's got across the leopold canal he knows how important this is and yeah. uh, so he throws himself into it whole wholeheartedly um and so we see this you know these ridiculous casualty rates and yet these battalions keep going uh, the Black the Watcher, uh, you know, a perfect lesson in that. Uh, I think they're probably the most unlucky battalion in the, in the Canadian Army. They go up very a ridge and they get slaughtered in the, the Normandy campaign. Here uh, they attack just to the west of a town called Vonsdrecht, um, going through open, uh, flooded fields again towards a railway bank, a, a railway line that the Germans are anchored against. And they get chopped to pieces again. So, do we let them have a rest? No, we throw them in the causeway <laughs> and make then, them say, "Take the causeway with you know whatever the 150 men you still have standing," um, and it fails disastrously as well. After the Shelf Estuary, the same thing will happen in the Rhineland campaign for that for that regiment. Um, but each time that regiment regroups, gets gathers up whatever men they have. And go into the attack. There's no thought yeah, about
1: that's them not astonishing, doing it. it. Yeah. Yeah. And how much? I mean, that that is absolutely astonishing uh, and just so underappreciated. I, I mean, I, I, it it seems so wrong, doesn't it? I mean, now there's been a film about it, but it's not, obviously not going to have quite the same impact as Band of Brothers or, or Saving Private Ryan. But 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 presumably these guys are having to, you know, this is this is not the same as fighting in 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 Sicily or Italy, and it's not the same as fighting in in Normandy, by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, you know, you know, you're suddenly having, you're you're suddenly finding yourself in, in terrain and situations and circumstances which are alien to you, and and you just have to adapt. I mean, how much, how much of tactics having to be kind of worked out on the hoof in landscape like this which is permanently flooded and where everyone can see you coming and you know the weather's always terrible yeah well it was very uh,
2: much a a battle that was being made up as it went along Um, the original idea with the Breskin's pocket had been 7th Brigade would establish the bridgehead across the Leopold 9th Brigade would exploit through that bridgehead and and clearly uh, pocket that doesn't happen because 7th Brigade is just left with a toehold on the other side of the Leopold Canal that it can't exploit. So suddenly a new plan is needed. Well, let's take 9th Brigade, hook them around to and put them in buffaloes and AVREs and all that, um, and sail across to uh, land on uh, to Hoof um by actually being in the South Estuary. So suddenly we've become an amphibious force. Um, the only training 3rd big division had ever had in amphibious operations was for Juno Beach and so that was a very different you know that was just get in a bunch of LCAs, roll yeah, up to the beach and, no buffaloes then, for example. Yeah. and get out. So suddenly we're learning how to operate with buffalos. Um, you know uh, training I think it was like three days. They had you know, the, some quick training down by Ghent. Here's what you do, boys. And, and then they get up there and the operation works. This is called Operation Switchback. Um, it, it actually works because it catches the Germans by surprise. They're still thinking everything's going to come across the Leopold Canal. And then suddenly here here's a brigade of Canadians show up on their back door um, yeah. and fight their way. To the other side of the Breskin's pocket and close it off. But, you know, they're making this stuff up as they go along. Um, Simmons' decision to flood <laughs> Vulcan Island is another example of that. Um, he realizes that it's so heavily fortified that if they have to fight their way from one fort to another inside that island, the casualties will be huge. Solution: If the whole island is below sea level, blow the dikes that protect it and flood the island. Those Germans then become isolated uh, and can't support each other, and that's that. Then enables the, the commandos, uh, the British commandos, to come in on the uh, west side and successfully um, take Vlissingen and and move and and close up the island.
1: So that's I mean, the right decision.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, it sounds like a proper gamble because that because you're you're cr- creating even more inestippable terrain on on one level, aren't you? You're you're, mm-hmm. you're you're doing it you're doing it all over again to yourself, aren't you? Um, yes,
2: and there was a definite um, moral ethical uh, yeah, decision there as well because a heck of a lot of Dutch uh, civilians drowned um, when when that island was flooded. Um, and I think it's, uh, it goes again to Simmons's personality that he could make that decision um, and have no regrets about it after all, afterwards or during. You know, I'll flood that island. I don't care how many Dutch people are going to be killed. That was very much his I mean, how many approach.
1: Dutch people? What, what is it, two and a half thousand, something like that? Yeah, yeah
2: so uh, you know a significant loss of life and you know of course the island itself is is inundated with salt water uh it was i think about the late 1950s before they actually recovered from the damage that was done to the island so that they got back to being able to farm the land and, and stuff like that because it all had to be desalinated and, and everything afterwards. So so it's it, there's a huge consequence there in, in flooding that island. But, um, you know, when you look at uh, if they had to fight for every square inch of Falkland Island, that battle probably would have extended on another month.
1: And there's just, and there's just no question of besieging it because besieging is not quick enough. Yeah, that's right. You know, it had to.
2: Be, we got to get Antwerp open in order to get those supplies coming in because I mean, until then, you know, it's still all coming from the Normandy beachhead. Um, and and you see. After market garden, because of the huge amount of resources that were thrown into market garden, you see the American and British uh, advances really starting to slow down because they are running out of fuel. Um, Everybody is figuring, you know, well, the moment market garden's over, everyone forgets about the war being over by Christmas. Um, You know, that's not going to happen, Eisenhower. But even so,
1: we need to need to get on with it.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and and so they're really trying to keep things rolling and that's another problem the First Canadian Army has. Um, They're fighting the Estuary battle but they're at the tail end of the supply chain. They're getting what's left over uh, from the Americans and the British because they're still trying to break into Germany um, with what they've got and what they have is not much. So. You know, we see uh, the Canadians are at times actually running out of artillery ammunition um, at a time when they that's about the only firepower they have to bring to the battle because the tanks aren't being very useful. So you you want your artillery. Even that's not very useful because the shells, you know, splash into the water, bury themselves, and don't do a heck of a lot of damage. Um, Both the Germans and the Canadians are suffering from that one throughout this battle the throwing a lot of our munitions at each other and it's not doing a heck of a lot uh, in the right. way of damage so it's a battle that is fought by machine gun and rifle primarily wow. so it's a
0: so it's wow. a hard infantry slog Mm-hmm. And the and the you know the, the, uh, as you said earlier on, you, if you've got someone sat behind an MG42, you know he doesn't he doesn't need to be yeah. um, how hard can it be? Uh, exactly, he doesn't need to be a sort of a gritty as He, he could be anybody, and, yeah. and, and, and yet they they're in the mix too. So I mean, yeah, it
1: must be grim for the Germans as I mean, well. I guess. Well, yeah, yeah
0: absolutely. Yeah, yeah. make no mistake. <laughs>
2: there was this, in and there was a Dutch guy I interviewed who was a little boy in Lissegen. And um he was one of, his dad was the mayor of the Vlisik, and so he that family didn't get evacuated. Most of them the town was evacuated. And so when the, the island is flooded, the Germans who were staying in their house kept saying, Well hi hi is the water going to come and the little boy would point to the church tower and he said, oh, it'll be over the church tower soon. And, and, and these, these Germans were all from from rural central Germany and so they had no idea about coastal waters or anything. And they were terrified you know, that they were going to drown. It was a great little piece of, of um, a psycho uh, intelligence on that kid's part.
1: Uh, but Mark, I was going to say, I mean, you know, over the years you, you've had the privilege of talking to a large number of canadian veterans um and and one of the kind of usps of your work is is the is the kind of human story that you bring into your books and 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 not least on the forgotten um on the on the brutal battle i mean it's it's you know what how do canadian veterans view this i mean do, do they feel that no one appreciates it do they do they do they feel bitter about it or are they proud of it or or is there no sort of hard and fast rule on this
2: uh they were proud of what they did um they they felt what i was interesting with it is very few veterans could tell me more than just a little a couple things that happened to them in the shell estuary um they couldn't give a really coherent um description of everything they did there well because and, it's just so
1: brutal and just yeah, so confused
2: and they they often said I just really what I really remember was being wet all the time and cold <laughs> I'm just freezing and 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 also just never knowing when I was gonna get hit because almost everyone around me was getting hit and and so there's this feeling that when they get through it it's sort of like well Jesus Christ I got through that one <laughs> you know um, and and just a sense of relief um, you know, because the hardship of the battle was, was so uh, poignant to them, especially the infantry guys, the um, artillery people, and the tankers. They have a different memory of it because they just not much happened to them except for Fourth Armored Division, which was out on the right side, um, going into an area called the Brabant Heights, um, you know, to the um, east of Antwerp, and up there. There was some tight, good, some pretty heavy tank fighting there, and it was, it was difficult, too, because it was all uh, wooded, um, managed forests. And the roads that go through there were just intended for the, the loggers to go in and, and do their wood cutting. And so they were narrow, and the tanks just had to be in a line, you know, rolling along, and... Um, it's pretty, you know, so they were getting picked off as well because the Germans all, again, this time not an MG42, this time it was a 75 millimeter anti-tank gun can hold up an entire battalion of tankers for an, an entire day trying to winkle them out and, and, and then you wipe out that gun and you just do it again uh, further down the road. So that's the kind of battle it was. And so their memories... There's not any good memories, I'll tell you that, of the Shelt <laughs> Estuary. Everyone is sort of like it was just... Well, there, there was a lovely little, um, in, the, in the Third Division's war diary, of, with the Breskin's pocket, and uh, I think it was November 2nd entry, um, the guy, somebody wrote the official writes into it. The Breskins pocket campaign is now done, and somebody wrote in the margin in in handwritten, thank God <laughs> you, know? <laughs> it was, you know you read that news. It's, it's like, well, that was very, very true emotion at that time.
1: And in terms of casualties, I mean, how much are, are kind of sort of battle casualties by kind of sort of bullet and 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 mortar? And how much uh, disease and kind of foot rot and all that kind of stuff? The uh, the battle casualties are around 5,000,
2: um, and that's the battle. The illness factor knocks out about another 3,000 guys. Wow. Uh, most of those will return, but they're... They're, it's you know they they're going to be anything from one week to a couple a month getting uh, treated for the for the kind of thing, so illness was a huge factor in it, which is not surprising. You get that cold, many people cold and wet. You're going to get pneumonia yeah. and, and flus and all that stuff, and and you know the trench foot is another. Um, Thing there because of people's being their feet being wet all the time. Uh, they, it almost became kind of a World War One thing in, in that where they um, a lot of company commanders were actually making their troops take their shoes off uh, in the the mor- morning and making sure that their their feet were dry. Um, so trying to always make sure that they had a, a dry pair of socks. Uh, a lot of them talked about they would stick a pair of socks under under one armpit and uh, keep it there through the day. And then that would be their, their pair of socks for the next day. Right. And they'd take the soggy socks they had, stick it in under their armpit and try and dry them out again. Um, wow. So um, the officers were quite worried about uh, the whole trench foot scenario, because um, it was a real
1: threat. And Let's just say, for, I mean, you know, I'm not really I'm not a big fan of counterfactuals, but just to say that, that you know, they hadn't done Market Garden and they had concentrated on clearing the shell. Do you think that could have been cleared very easily?
2: Yes, uh, it could have at that time, because um, 15th German Army was um, had crossed the shell and the plan the Germans had, because they figured that Antwerp there would be this exploitation out of Antwerp, um, into the South Beveland uh, isthmus, and so they were prepared to. They were running. They were. They were. They were ready to withdraw. Actually, they had a plan in place to withdraw right out of southern Holland, and and pull out over into eastern Holland, up by Groningen, and that they might make a stand there, or they might just let all of Holland go. And because then they could defend that part of Germany fairly easily. um, And that would have freed some divisions to be sent to face the British and Americans. And so that's the sort of plan they were making. And then the uh, exploitation doesn't happen at, at Antwerp. And they say, "Whoops! Hey, let's stop <laughs> and turn around and and get back there." So they actually moved troops back across the Scheldt Estuary into the Breskin's pocket to defend it there. So they were. It would have gone. It would have been lost, and Twerp would have been opened up. Ah, uh, you know, but you know, Market Garden does have its 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 benefits in some ways you know it does move the line up to Nijmegen um you know so it's always you know it's that counterfactual thing you know well, you always happens.
1: want more don't you? you always want more troops and you want more supplies and you want more yeah. everything
2: yeah and more so, amphibious
1: craft and more ships and
2: so we would have had the supplies coming into Antwerp sooner um by about two and a half well three months basically um would that have tipped everything drastically for a more, just a more gradual, second? the British and Americans advancing side by side? Would they have reached Germany and pushed in? I don't think there would have been enough supplies, even with then. I think that supply shortage was something they couldn't get away from. So, you know, I do understand why Eisenhower and Montgomery made that um decision because you know Eisenhower you know everyone always wants to lay out the plane pretty much on Montgomery, especially the Americans <laughs> but you know that there was the meeting between Monty and Eisenhower in the plane that Eisen and Eisenhower's plane and Eisenhower could have said no to Operation Market Garden instead he said yes, let's do it. And in his own memoirs he said I would have made the same decision again. And that often gets sort of shunted to the side, and it becomes Monty's blunder. Um, it was, it was a, it was a joint blunder, if, the, if it was a blunder.
0: I mean, you're also running out of campaigning proper campaigning season, aren't you? And everything's getting just that much more difficult um, mm-hmm. after after September. But once you're past the the your terminal equinox, you're 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 running out of weather, light, um, and and and, ev- and everything else, aren't you? So yeah. so. <clears throat> so even if you have Antwerp earlier, you know you've still you've still got that to contend with, and those things all play into the defender's hands anyway. If you if getting to your start line is just that much more difficult, you know uh, everything everything necessarily happens more slowly.
2: Yeah, and no, you know nobody anticipates it, but the winter of nineteen forty four nineteen forty five is the worst winter in fifty years in Europe. Um, you know, so suddenly what you. Even what you thought was going to be a rough winter just becomes a whole heck of a lot worse. Um, And that, you know, we see that. Uh, It even plagues the Germans when they launch the Battle of the Bulge. Um, You know, they haven't planned for the kind of snow. Mark, Mark, I
1: should just tell you, I, I have mentioned this a few times on the pod. Yes, the <laughs> particularly
0: difficult winters.
2: <laughs> the dark,
1: the dark winters of the nineteen forties. I mean, they were they were all brutal, but yeah, no, that's yeah, right.
2: Yeah. It, it, even down in even down in Italy, they're getting this horrific winter in northern italy so you know yeah yeah absolutely it's everywhere. absolutely yeah
1: so mark I'm, i mean a lot of a lot of a lot of listeners would have seen uh, forgotten battle this new dutch movie i mean um, i'm i'm assuming you've seen it too have you yeah Let, let's give it points out of 10 for a movie and points out of 10 for historical accuracy
2: ah uh, i'd give it about an 8 as a movie and about a three for historical accuracy, <laughs> um, you know. And I don't even know that they were trying to be historically accurate, you know. Um, mm. You know, like I'm not like the, the the British paratrooper boys, you
1: know, making their way along. Um, how did they suddenly f- switching their helmets to a turtle helmet? And not they go, <laughs> yeah. they're in the, they're in the same company. Yeah,
2: so, you know, that's, that's kind of preposterous. Um, the boy in the uh, SS, Dutch SS, um, or in the SS, he's, in, he's actually serving in German SS, it seems. Um, you know, the, the Dutch had their own SS unit, uh, and they weren't there. <laughs> they, were, um, they show up in the, against the Canadians uh, big time in Groningen, in the uh, street battle there, um, and that's really the first time, you No, know, we ran into them in, in Zutphen as well. Um, so, you know, they, they, they aren't there. Uh, so he would have, if he was in the SS, he would have been with the Dutch, not, not fighting alongside the Germans. Um, so, you know, I don't know. Uh, it's an entertaining movie um the ending battle of the, where the canadians suddenly arrive and <laughs> appear and and fight in uh, the causeway um it's pretty dramatic it's, it's it's fairly well done but you know it's the most one of the most expensive i think it's the second most expensive film that that's ever been made by the dutch um that comes down to battle scenes uh we ran into this in canada with the movie passion dale um Small countries to af- be able to afford to make a war movie, you can have one battle. <laughs> you <know? laughs> and then you run out of money. money. <laughs> and so at Passchendaele, we have this, the movie, we had the same thing a very short little battle at the beginning. And then we have this long, protracted, dreary. Love story that goes on until we have the final battle at Passiondale itself, and the, the you know the battle's quite graphic and and good, except for some weird um, Christ on a cross kind of symbology at the end. <laughs> um, <laughs> But so, so I I understand what the Dutch were facing. You know, it's just yeah. like how do you finance these things?
0: Um, it's really yeah. hard to do if you don't have the Hollywood budget. I haven't finished the film. You didn't ask me for my score, Jim. I haven't f- <laughs> <laughs> well, I know because uh, you haven't finished it. I got halfway through it and and found the the. Uh, I quite enjoyed it. I, I quite enjoyed it as script, a movie. The script too difficult to get along with. I couldn't. I, I,
1: I also know. I couldn't quite get over kind of. Um, Draco Malfoy suddenly being a thirty-something officer—you <laughs> know—it just seemed seemed a bit odd. But but yeah, I mean, there's some good moments in it, and it's an amazing part of the world to to visit. I mean, um, you know, if you ever if one ever does get a chance to go there, there's some there's some terrific new museums there, and there's still lots of bunkers and. All sorts of stuff, and and it's very easy to imagine it, even though it's obviously it's not flooded anymore. I think it's very it's very easy to kind of sort of picture yourself the difficulties of facing the attackers and and indeed the defenders too. Um, yeah, there's lots to see,
2: and it hasn't changed as dramatically as some of the other battlefields
1: no. in Europe that we no, see.
2: No, no. You know, the the population is growing in that part of Holland, but not by a whole lot. So you know, the, well,
1: they know what's coming, don't they? <laughs> they're not going to have a welcome Valkyrie island in 50 years we're not careful yeah Yeah, that's
2: right (laughs) so my advice is get there while you can yeah yeah and there's actually I think there's Two new museums that have opened just in the last five years down in that that area. Yeah, so it's, yeah.
1: It's, I went to one and it was it was terrific. And they certainly had a buffalo there, but they had all sorts of kit and they had a kind of sort of a weird sort of beach scene at back of the museum. And was all sorts of stuff. I mean, it was it was pretty good. Yeah, I'm yeah. I still remember.
2: Well, the Dutch are
1: nothing if they're not
2: amazing collectors. And so, if they, you yeah, know, they take it, if they take it to them, and, you know, say I'm going to collect tanks, they'll have every tank type that there right. is, or whatever, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then no, they make a true. museum. Yeah,
1: yeah, and they're very interested in the subject, aren't they? But yes. listen, Mark, thank you so much for that. It's been been fascinating, and, fascinating. And, and great to have yeah. an expert on talking about this pivotal battle, but which which we've referred to so often, but never got to in any, any great detail. And I know a, a number of listeners have, have been kind of asking us to kind of get to the bottom of it. So <laughs> I'm very grateful to you. Um, but it'd be lovely to get you back on again to talk about some of the other um, Canadian exploits in the war as well. Yeah, happy to do so whenever you want. It's great want to see to you guys. You. Thanks very yeah, much, Mark.
0: And you. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll see you again soon. Cheerio.
1: Cheerio.